Hi, I'm Pastor Joel of Heart City Church. Friends, do you know what is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament? It's Psalm 110. So let's check it out. Of David, a psalm. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle. Arrayed in holy splendor, your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from a brook along the way, and so he will lift his head high. Friends, that is Psalm 110, the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. So why is it so important? Joel, why does the New Testament suggest Psalm 110 is such a huge help to you and I? Well, there is a scene in the temple just a few days before Jesus knows he's going to die on the cross. This is Jesus' last big public speaking opportunity, and he gives the people a riddle using Psalm 110. He says, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? It's Mark 12, verses 35 to 37. Jesus asks a riddle. Why do the scribes say that the Christ is David's son? The scribes had taught that the prophesied Christ, the one who would defeat all of Israel's enemies, he would be a son of David. And Jesus quotes Psalm 110, where David says, The Lord said to my Lord. Jesus is saying, the scribes are teaching you that your Christ is David's son. Okay, but David himself calls him Lord. Why in the world would David address his son that way? Jesus is saying, isn't that strange? Any of you fathers going around addressing your sons as your lords? Parents, do any of you call your kids in for supper saying, Lord Billy, your dinner is served. Jesus says, why does King David refer to the son that came after him as Lord? That makes the Christ's identity sort of a riddle, doesn't it? And this is the riddle we need to solve if Psalm 110 is going to be of any use to us today or going forward. Friends, what Jesus is saying is that this psalm is all about himself and who he came to be for his people who are living in this dying world. Jesus, the Son of God, became the son of David when he was sent by his father on the greatest rescue mission in human history. Jesus became man in order to save mankind. So why is Psalm 110 such an important help for us? Psalm 110 reveals who Jesus is for us as prophet, priest, and king. First, Jesus is our prophet. He declared that Psalm 110 revealed him to be God's answer to a dying race. Jesus is God's final word to us, Hebrews 1-2. Jesus came and spoke to you and I and brought us new life. And it is through his word and by his spirit that he reveals God's will for our salvation. Second, Jesus is your priest. Psalm 110 tells us that Jesus became our forever priest after the order of Melchizedek. And just because we don't know much about Melchizedek, 
Jesus being your high priest is of huge importance. Jesus, as your priest, offered up his life on the cross as a sacrifice to satisfy God's holy wrath for your sins. And he has brought sinners back to God. Oh, and by the way, his work as priest continues on to today. Jesus is not sitting on his throne in heaven just twiddling his thumbs. Every time you and I pray, Jesus is joining in with us, praying with and for us. Romans 8, 34. Jesus ever lives to plead for you as you battle against sin and shame in this life. Make sure you think about that the next time you pray. It is so encouraging to know that Jesus is on his knees next to you. And Psalm 110 also tells us Jesus came to be our king. Do you realize how your salvation depends on Jesus' kingship? King Jesus conquered our hearts, and he now rules and defends us. And we can rest assured because his final words before ascending to heaven were this, All authority in heaven and earth have been given to me, Matthew 28, 18. And then he adds, He will be with us always, even to the end of the age, in verse 20. Jesus promises to restrain all of his and our enemies, and one day he is coming in glory to judge the nations and to bring us into his glory. So give thanks today and consider how Jesus as prophet, priest, and king has changed our past, present, and future. My friends, remember who you are and who you belong to. It's on the news, social media feeds. It may happen to you when you get to work and perhaps behind closed doors attacks on you for your faith beliefs and your values, calling you out as intolerant because you will not encourage or endorse behaviors or ideas that your God tells you are wicked and evil. Hi, I'm Pastor Joel of Heart City Church, and we live in a day when the church and culture are moving in opposite directions, and hostility, particularly words, is growing increasingly pervasive. Hate speech is everywhere. And we may feel the urge to retaliate, to respond in kind when we're attacked wrongly. But friends, as one God-hater rightly noted, he said, whoever fights monsters should see to it that in the process, he does not become a monster. So Pastor Joel, what should we do? Well, let's consider some wisdom from an ancient king, King David, who writes, my God whom I praise, do not remain silent. For people who are wicked and deceitful have opened their mouths against me. They have spoken against me with lying tongues. With words of hatred they surround me. They attack me without cause. In return for my friendship, they accuse me. But I am a man of prayer. Friends, these are the opening verses of Psalm 109. And we hear David is being attacked without cause. And trying to make friends, well, that's backfired. So what does this ancient king do? He becomes a man of prayer. Now you might be surprised at what comes next in this very lengthy psalm. David prays that God will bring vengeance down upon the wicked, that their memory be cut off from the earth. He prays that they will get everything that is their due. Whoa, Pastor Joel, are we allowed to pray to God like that? I mean, I'll confess this is what I'm thinking when I'm being slandered, but Jesus said love our enemies, right? How can this psalm be relevant in our day? My friends, God placed this ancient prayer in our Bibles because it is as relevant today as it was in David's. Psalm 109 is what we call an imprecatory prayer, 
And there are handfuls of these in the Psalter where prayers are offered that enemies be utterly destroyed. Now, sadly, Christians tend to avoid these, thinking, well, they're irrelevant in our day. So we either repress our anger when we're attacked, which benefits no one and makes us ticking time bombs, or we explode and fire off our own verbal grenades, which lead to further destruction and division. My friends, rather what we should do is learn how to pray like this, bringing these requests to God. I'll admit the language of Psalm 109 is hard, so we need to keep some points out in front of us as we pray these kinds of prayers. For instance, one thing to note is in Psalm 109, this is a prayer of God's king, who evil people are trying to take down. And if the king is brought down, huh, all the people suffer. So this psalm is not in the first place about you. Second, this sort of prayer is reserved for serious evil, not trivial matters, somebody who cuts you off in traffic. No, the people in Ukraine whose women are being raped, whose children are being killed, they have every right to pray that God bring harsh justice to such evil perpetrators. Third, remember this sort of prayer is not about personal vengeance. It is about God bringing evil to an end in this world. In fact, that is what makes it so good to take this and leave it with God. Because if you happen to be wrong in your assessment of the evil being done, well, guess what? God isn't going to answer your prayer. And lastly, by taking up this posture on your knees as a person of prayer, you're not taking up a position of power. Listen to David in verses 21 and 22. But you, sovereign Lord, help me for your name's sake. Out of the goodness of your love deliver me, for I am poor and needy, and my heart is wounded within me. We pray like this because we recognize our helplessness, that only God can make things right in this world. And this is the same posture that our Lord Jesus took up. Jesus took Psalm 109 upon his lips in his private moments with God. Jesus left it with his heavenly Father, and then he went out into the world, and he endured the vicious attacks of the wicked. And in doing so, think about it, Jesus became the answer to David's prayer and ours as well. My friends, remember who you are and who you belong to. Hi, I'm Pastor Joel of Heart City Church. We're in the midst of a tremendous cultural shift, spiritually speaking. Barna reported that 52% of professing Christians believe that they can earn eternal life by being or doing good. Friends, the scales have tipped. Those who put their trust in God alone to save, which the Bible teaches, Jonah 2.9, are now in the minority. The majority of professing Christians now think that their salvation is accomplished, at least in part, by human efforts. Let's take in Psalm 108, which compels us to place our destiny in God's hands alone. Psalm 108, My heart, O God, is steadfast. I will sing and make music with all my soul. Awake, harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. I will praise you, Lord, among the nations. I will sing of you among the peoples. For great is your love, higher than the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. This psalm begins with praise to the Lord whose love and faithfulness ascend beyond the stratosphere. And God's greatness compels David to beat the morning sun to the punch. So much for rising with the sun, because that sun has taken too long. I'm going to bring the day in. 
I'm going to be the early riser, overflowing in praise to God. This is what David says. He then brings his prayer requests to God in verses 5 and 6. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Save us and help us with your right hand, that those you love may be delivered. Notice David begins with a request that God's glory be known in every corner of the earth. And only after does he seek salvation from God. David is humble. He is entirely decentered from himself. And following the praise and the prayer, David now remembers God's promise in verses 7 and 9. God has spoken from his sanctuary. In triumph I will parcel out Shechem and measure off the valley of Succoth. Gilead is mine. Manasseh is mine. Ephraim is my helmet. Judah is my scepter. Moab is my washbasin. On Edom I toss my sandal. Over Philistia I shout in triumph. Abraham Kuyper once said, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. David understands that God made a promise to subdue this rebellious earth. And with that in mind, David now makes his profession in the closing verses. Who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? Is it not you, God? You who have rejected us and no longer go out with our armies? Give us aid against the enemy, for human help is worthless. With God we will gain the victory, and he will trample down our enemies. David recognizes that if he's left to his own resources, he has no hope for victory. So he asks God for help against his enemies. He realizes human help is worthless. Human weight doesn't measure at all on the scales when it comes to our salvation. Friends, we face enemies far too great for us. We're no match for the devil. <laughs> Last week I officiated a funeral and I saw death snatch another person from this earth. And sin taints even our best deeds. Friend, would you dare parade your life accomplishments before holy God and suggest that he owes you the glory to come? Friends, Martin Luther drove himself mad trying to fulfill the requirements that the Bible sets forth. And he realized that his human efforts were vain. But then Luther discovered, or, or better, he recovered the gospel, the good news. The historic Christian faith that taught salvation came through faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone, to the glory of God alone. And the gates of heaven swung wide open for him. Luther later wrote, God has assuredly promised his grace to the humble, that is, to those who lament and despair of themselves. But no man can be thoroughly humbled until he knows that his salvation is utterly beyond his own powers, devices, endeavors, will, and works, and depends entirely on the choice, will, and work of another, namely, of God alone. For as long as he is persuaded that he himself can do even the least thing toward his salvation, he retains some self-confidence and does not altogether despair of himself, and therefore he is not humbled before God, but presumes that there is, or at least hopes or desires that there may be, some place, time, and work for him by which he may at length attain to salvation. But when a man has no doubt that everything depends on the will of God, then he completely despairs of himself and chooses nothing for himself, but waits for God to work. Friends, all our human efforts are ultimately worthless 
With God, however, we will gain the victory, as Psalm 108 affirms. And on this side of the cross, we are assured our salvation is fully accomplished. All we need to do is receive and rest wholly on Christ alone. My friend, remember who you are and who you belong to. Hi, I'm Pastor Joel of Heart City Church. Martin Luther once said, This life, therefore, is not righteousness, but growth in righteousness, not health, but healing, not being, but becoming, not rest, but exercise. We are not yet what we shall be, but we are growing toward it. The process is not finished, but it is going on. This is not the end, but it is the road. All does not yet gleam in glory, but all is being purified. That statement captures Psalm 107 well, which begins, Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord tell their story. Psalm 107 invites those who have been redeemed by God to tell their own story and to consider it in light of the great tapestry of reversals that God is weaving into history. The psalm goes on then to give four stories about different types of people that God has redeemed by reversal. First, you have the innocent wanderers, verses 4 to 9. These are folks who meet suffering through no fault of their own. They then cry out to God, and He delivers them, satisfying their hunger and thirst, bringing them to a city where they belong. The next story is in verses 10 to 16, and it's of those who suffer, and it is their fault. You see, they have rebelled against God's rules, and now they find themselves imprisoned. So, they cry out to God, and God delivers them, breaking their chains and bringing them out of darkness. Story 3 is verses 17 to 22. It's about fools who walk a sinful path and then find themselves at death's door. So they cry out to God, and God delivers them. God sends his word and heals them, rescuing them from the grave. And the last story is of the mighty merchants, verses 23 to 32. These are sailors who set out to sea, only to find themselves in a super storm that leaves them at their wit's end. They think they're perishing, uh, and you guessed it. They cry out to God, and God delivers them, hushing the great storm, and bringing them into a safe haven. I'm sure you saw the common pattern. God redeems through reversals. The wanderer finds a home. The prisoner is freed. The dying are healed. The storm-tossed end up in a safe harbor. Each story of redemption is about reversal. And the reversal of all things is how this psalm concludes, verses 40 to 43. He who pours contempt on nobles made them wander in a trackless waste. But he lifted the needy out of their affliction and increased their families like flocks. The upright see and rejoice, but all the wicked shut their mouths. Let the one who is wise heed these things and ponder the loving deeds of the Lord. The nobles, those people who are high, God brings low. The needy who are low, God lifts them up. The wicked, they're hushed. The upright, they end up rejoicing. My friends, 
God is the God who delights in turning everything that is upside down right side up. And the final verse invites us to become wise by considering this, by pondering God's loving deeds in each of these storylines. By the way, which story or stories are most like your story? And what should you do? What should we do in light of seeing God's pattern of redemption by reversal? Well, first, we should see that this life is not glory, but rather it's the cross. God makes his glory known in our lives in the same pattern that he did in his own son's life. Jesus took up a cross with an eye to the glory to come, that great glory reversal promised by the Father. Second, we should learn from this pattern the proper posture. We must go low and cry out to God. We ought to stay needy and on our knees. In every story, the reversal comes after folks see their need and cry out to God. And at the end, we read that those who don't see their need, those nobles, those who are wicked, they end up being humbled. They end up being hushed. Psalm 107 teaches us that God has established what we could describe as the law of grace. You see, grace by nature, it's kind of like water. It only flows downhill. We get up too high, we take ourselves to where God's grace won't reach us. But if we go low, we enable God's grace to flow into our lives. This, my friends, is the gospel. See your need, turn to God, and be wise in remembering that this is not the end, but it is the road. God redeems us by reversal. Remember who you are and who you belong to. Hi, I'm Pastor Joel of Heart City Church. Today we will sample Psalm 106, which begins in verse 1 this way. Praise the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His love endures forever. This psalm begins with a call for gratitude, because God is good, because His love endures forever. You've probably heard that call and response where some person will say, God is good all the time, and the other person will respond, all the time, God is good. And when there's no end to God's goodness, you have to ask the question that we hear in verse 2. Who can proclaim the mighty acts of the Lord or fully declare his praise? And the answer is no one. No one can fully declare the praise of an infinitely good God. But the author of Psalm 106 gives it a go as he begins to speak of God's mighty acts in a very messy context. And I do mean messy. Psalm 106 is a long recounting of Israel's history as a wayward people. Here's a summary list of their sins. The people were guilty of thoughtlessness, verse 6, forgetfulness, verse 7, impatience, verse 13, impurity, verse 15, envy, verse 16, idolatry, verse 19, unbelief, verse 24, grumbling, verse 25, wickedness, verse 29, Rashness, verse 33. Child sacrifice, verse 37. Prostitution, verse 39. This is not a pretty picture. This is a horrific history. How might you expect God to respond to this constant rebellion? Verses 43 to 45 sum up God's response. 
Many times he delivered them, but they were bent on rebellion and they wasted away in their sin. Yet he took note of their distress when he heard their cry. For their sake he remembered his covenant, and out of his great love he relented. God responds with grace that is greater than all their sins. Truly, God is good all the time, and all the time God is good. God remembers his promise and relents from destroying all who turn back and cry to him for help. You see, his heart is full of compassion. God does not hold grudges. God truly wants us to trust in him. And the proof of this is found in his sending his own son, Jesus. And Jesus took upon himself all of the sins of Psalms 106 at Calvary's cross. Their faithful Jesus had the wrath of God's holy fury poured out on him so that faithless people could have God's healing fountain poured out on them, cleansing them of all their sin and shame. And by the way, Psalm 106 is for God's people today as well. One of the worst mistakes we can make is that of chronological snobbery, thinking that those folks were the big sinners and we only commit little sins. Uh, do you remember Jesus' response to the Pharisees who saw themselves as little sinners? It's interesting that the little sinners are the ones who sent Jesus to the cross. My friend, recall your own history and remember how God has saved you in the past. And then let's swallow our pride and confess we are part of a history of sinners needing grace. With the final two verses of Psalm 106, verses 47 and 48, Save us, Lord our God, and gather us from the nations, that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. Let all the people say, Amen. Praise the Lord. We ask God to show us his grace so that we might show him our gratitude. And we do this knowing that he longs to gather us up so that we might glorify him. Friends, that concludes book four of the Psalms. We'll begin the final book next time. Until then, remember who you are and who you belong to. This is News Source 1 Michiana, Elkhart South Bend. 